You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. Reverend fear. Folks, this is where true revival starts. True revival starts when you have a sense of awe before our most holy God, and that is coupled with a sense of your unworthiness. When you see God for who He is, and you see yourself for who you really are, then revival can start in your heart. Then revival can happen. You want revival? Get on your face before God. Get on your face and confess your unworthiness and pray. True revival starts with reverence for God. In today's message from Pastor Dave, he teaches you that revival takes place when there is reverence in your heart for God. When you revere the Lord, you have a holy fear of Him. You see how awesome He is, and it leads you to have a repentant heart that seeks to honor Him. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he begins his message, The Characteristics of the New Church. going to continue in our study in the book of Acts. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts 2, we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 47. Today's message is entitled, The Characteristics of the New Church. The Characteristics of the New Church. Okay, if you will read silently, I will gladly read aloud. Acts 2, 43 to 47. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So what is a characteristic? What is a characteristic? Well, according to our dictionary, a characteristic is a feature or quality that makes somebody or something recognizable. A characteristic is a distinguishing feature of the particular person or thing. So you and I have certain characteristics that make us distinguishable from the next person. Like when you're in a crowd, we would be able to pick each other out by these characteristics. For example... I'm extremely good-looking and highly intelligent, and I'm very modest. Thank you for laughing. That was a joke. (laughs) Now, these aren't characteristics because there are other, well, a few other good-looking men and highly intelligent as well. But a characteristic is one thing that stands out, one thing that makes you different from somebody else. It might be the way you walk. It might be the fact that you wear a hat all the time. It might be a fact that the certain clothes that you wear are recognizable to other people, and it makes you different. That's a characteristic. An example of this is we have twins. We have twin boys, and they're identical twins except for one thing. And somebody said, well, then they're not identical. One of them has a mole right here. And when we see that mole, we know that's Joe. And we can't get them confused because the other one doesn't have the mole, so that must be George. 
I don't care if they're wearing the same clothes or not. When I see that mole, I know who I'm talking to. That's a characteristic. It's a recognizable feature that stands out. And I can tell him apart. He stands out. Calvary Chapel, all Calvary Chapels, have characteristics which distinguish themselves from other churches. We call them our distinctives, the Calvary Chapel distinctives. And that's what the men are studying right now, the Calvary Chapel distinctives. In other words, what does Calvary Chapel do that makes it different from Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholicism, and those type of things? They're called distinctives. We're studying the rapture of the church this week, which is one of our distinctives. We believe in the rapture of the church. So too did the early church have characteristics. The new church had these distinguishing features that set them apart from others that made them different from the ruling elders of the Jews, that made them different from the Pharisees, that made them different from the Sadducees, that made them different from any other sect that was going around. But let me set this up for you. The Holy Spirit had fallen upon the 120 believers in the upper room that night. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, comes out and gives this wonderful sermon that not only touches the hearts of the men, but it pierces their heart to the quick. It pierces them. And 3,000, 3,000 people are saved in one day. The church explodes. It goes from 120 to 3,000, 25 times itself. The new church followed a specific plan. They followed a specific thing of what they were going to do. It was a Holy Spirit plan. And two weeks ago, we talked about it. It was God's plan. If you look in verse 42 of chapter 2, it says this, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. They did these four things every time they met. This was God's plan for the church. It was how he wanted the church to function, for the lack of a better term. We called these things essentials. We said that they were necessary. If you take one out, we liken it to a table. And if you take one of the legs out, the table would fall or tilt, and it might collapse. If we take one of these things out of our fellowship, then we might have a problem. They did everything, and it says they did it steadfastly, and they continued in them. When they did these essentials, their faith was built. Their faith soared, and they got strengthened, and there was unity. But as a result of these essentials, as a result of these new believers listening to the Word of God, fellowshipping, breaking bread from house to house, we said this was eating and communion, and praying, the church then took on certain characteristics. These characteristics can be found now in our scriptures for today. The characteristics of the new church. Distinguishable traits that made them stand out. Traits that made them different from the religious people of their day. And looking at the scriptures in verse 43, we see the first characteristic, fear. Then fear came upon every soul. This fear is not terror. This is not terror. This is not terror, fear. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says to his young son, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. This fear is not terror. It is a feeling of awe. It's a feeling of respect. It's a reverent fear, if you will. We're told in the book of Proverbs about this very fear. In Proverbs 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In chapter 9 of Proverbs, in verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning... Excuse me. Chapter 1, chapter one, verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In chapter 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So in other words, as the new church studied God's Word, they got to know God on a personal level. 
something that they had never known before. Because in the Jewish tradition, you didn't know this God personally the way we now know him. And as they begin to do this, as they begin to get closer and closer and closer to God, something happened in their lives. It happened to Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 5 of Isaiah. When Isaiah saw God seated on the throne in all his glory and all his wonder, what did Isaiah say? Isaiah didn't say, oh, look, there's God. No, he couldn't. He couldn't say a word. What did he say? Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you have an encounter with God, that is exactly what happens. Because as God shines his love on you, and as God shines his grace on you, what shows up? Your uncleanliness, your unworthiness, bellows out and you go, yuck. When you stand next to a holy and righteous God, and when you're in that light and glory, the only you see is a wretchedness, filthy rags, as Isaiah calls them. Our righteousness is his filthy rags. And when we see that, it's like, yuck. Oh, my. This is the fear that the new church had. An awesome, respectful, reverent fear, realizing that a holy God had cleansed them from their sin and made them new. When this happens, it actually causes a sense of holiness. The children of Israel had this sense of holiness. Every time Moses would talk to God, and every time Moses came back from talking to God, he shined. He had this glow about him because God had spoken to him. And he had this this look, this look of, of reverence, and his face showed the glory of God. And when they saw this, they were in awe, and they trembled with this fear, this reverent fear. Folks, this is where true revival starts. True revival starts when you have a sense of awe before our most holy God, and that is coupled with a sense of your unworthiness. When you see God for who he is, and you see yourself for who you really are, then revival can start in your heart. Then revival can happen. You want revival? Get on your face before God. Get on your face and confess your unworthiness and pray. You know, this formula is not new. This formula that I just said to you is over several thousand years old because in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, we're told, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. He says, if my people will do those things, all those things, get on their face before God, pray to God, recognize their sinfulness, what's he going to do? Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's revival, folks. That's revival. And the scripture says, where does revival begin? In the house of God. It begins with us. We all want revival. We all want loved ones saved. We all have friends and neighbors and family members who are unsaved, and we want them saved. Well, guess what, folks? It starts with us. And I can't point at you because there's three fingers pointing back at me. It starts with me. We need to be on our face before our God, declaring His worthiness and our unholiness and accepting whatever He has for us and moving forward. That's where revival starts, and that's what we want in our lives. But compounding the fear that these 3,000 believers had, this all, if you will, was the signs and wonders being done by the apostles. Look at the second part of that verse. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. I love this. The church saw these signs and wonders being done through the apostles. There's a key word there, through the apostles. It didn't say 
by the apostles, because if it said by the apostles, that means the, the apostles somehow had something to do with these signs and wonders when they did not. The apostles were just the vehicle in which God was working these signs and wonders through. The apostles were so in tune with God, so unworthy of God's love and such knowledge of that, that God was working mightily through them and doing these signs and wonders. And this was drawing more people into the church, drawing more people into God's kingdom. They were giving all the credit to God. They were giving all the glory to God. They weren't taking anything for themselves. They were in all of God. They were not in all of man. There was a fear of God, not a fear of man. It was God who was being raised up. God was doing the signs and wonders, and the apostles were just the vehicles. The church witnessed this. The new church saw this, and their faith soared. How many of you have been around here? We've had these prayer meetings. We pray after every Wednesday night service. We pray. And if you've been with us long enough, you have seen signs and wonders. You've seen wonders happen when we pray, when we pray for jobs to happen, when we pray for for healing to happen, when we pray for our loved ones to be saved. You've seen that happen here as God has worked mightily when we pray together and He does the work. And He might use you as a conduit, as a vehicle. The problem arises. The problem in some of the churches today is that's all they want are signs and wonders. They're seeking the signs of wonders and they're not seeking the God who gives the signs and wonders. They're seeking the gifts, but not the gift giver. We hold Jesus at a very high place here. It's his church. This is his church. And he is the head of this church. We are his body. And we hold him up. And we lift his name up. And he is the one that we rejoice in. And if there's anything being done here, he will get the credit, not man. He gets the credit because it's him that is doing the work. But they feared. They had this reverent awe of God. They had this wonderful, reverent, beautiful fear of God. Second characteristic of the early church was unity. Now, we've studied unity before when we did our study in the book of Philippians, and you might recall that. But look at verse 44. It says, Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. There are several things worth pointing out here. Several things worth pointing out. First of all, they were together. The new church liked being together. The new church liked fellowshipping. They enjoyed fellowshipping with each other. You know what? They liked each other's company. Imagine that. They enjoyed each other. They liked having fellowship. I do too. When we have Super Bowl parties, the ladies were together yesterday and they had their, their um, Pollyanna, they had their little breakfast yesterday morning and there was fellowship there. And you know, I love any time the church gets together. I love being with the brethren. And that's what I miss the most. When I was away, I missed you guys terribly because I missed the fellowship. I missed the one-on-one, the talking, the praying, the praising God. I missed that terribly. And it was good for me to be away. It was good for me to be away because I got to miss you. I got to miss my friends, the people I love, and people I love being around. That's what the new church did. The new church loved being together. They enjoyed it. The second thing worth noting is they had all things in common. All things in common. Did you ever look around at the people that you fellowship with? You have my permission. Look around at the people you fellowship with. Look around at the people you fellowship with. Okay, now everybody turn your eyes back here. Very good. Very good. Very good. If I was to ask you and to determine one quality that all of you shared, what would it be? The love of Jesus Christ, yes. Because if it wasn't for the love of Jesus Christ, we probably wouldn't even want to know each other. We would all be in different circles, all be in different things, doing all all kinds of stuff, and we probably wouldn't get to know each other. But because of Christ, we have all things in common. He's the common one in us. 
because of Christ. Who remembers grade school fractions? Oh, I heard some moans there. I'm with you. I'm with you on the moans. I'm with you on the moans for grade school fractions. Today, class, we're going to divide fractions. Oh, no. The one thing you have to do when you divide fractions is what? You have to find the common denominator. I had a hard time with that, you know, because, you know, I wasn't the sharpest tack in the pack. Man, I tell you what, I had a hard time. You know, Math and I just did not get along, you know. Wow. In fact, when I went to college, I was registering for college, and I'm a sh- I was a shop teacher. I was registering for college, and th- for some reason they said, well, you can either take math or you can take a foreign language. I said, habla espanol. There's no way I was going to take math. There's no, in fact, it probably was math that kept me from doing my lifelong dream, which was to become an architect. Because when you think of math, you think of calculus, trigonometry. Oh, my goodness, forget that stuff. But anyhow, when you did fractions, when you divided fractions, you had to find the common denominator. You know where I'm going. We don't have that problem any longer. We know what the common denominator is. And it's not a what, it's a who, and it's a he. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He is our common denominator. He is what we all share together in this room. And he's the reason now that we are all one. He is the common denominator in all of us. And he's the one that helps us to have all things in common. In him, we are one. Paul makes this extremely clear in Galatians 3, verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. These early believers knew that their commonality was in Christ. Their faith was in Christ. Their fellowship was in Christ. Their entire life was in Christ. Remember Paul's great statement in Philippians 1.21 when we study that? Paul boldly says, for, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. One of the greatest characteristics a Christian should have is a visible life in Jesus Christ. It should be visible for those who are looking in. Yes, you're going to make mistakes. Talk about mistakes? I'll give you a list of mine that I made today. Yes, but your life will show Jesus Christ. You recognize your mistakes. You go back to the cross. You ask for forgiveness. You repent and you move forward. This should set a Christian apart from the world. Our life in Christ. It should set us apart. When Paul was speaking to the men of Athens, and we're going to talk about this and whoever knows when we're going to get there, Acts 17, verse 28, he says this, For in him, Christ, we live and move and have our being. As some of our poets own said, for we are also his offering. Christ is our commonality. He's not only our commonality, he is our very existence. He is our very existence and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Isn't that the neatest thing? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Well, how do you get that? I'm glad you asked. Paul, in his beautiful, beautiful treatise to the Roman church, in chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, listen to what it says. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, not nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. Nothing can separate us from that love. Now, there are scholars who study the early church that have said that the early church was the first experiment in communism. Communism. I disagree with that. I don't think this was communism. I think it was communism. They shared a commonality. See, 
the major difference is in communism, what's yours is mine. But in communism, what's mine is yours freely. See the difference? That leads us to the next characteristic of the new church. They had love for one another, and they demonstrated this love by being others-centered. They were others-centered. These early believers knew the cost of fellowship. Take a look at verse 45, if you will. They sold their possessions and goods, and they divided them among all as anyone had need. You know, the early church did not just give everything away, as some has portrayed them. They didn't sell everything and just give it away lavishly. No. When they sold their possessions, they saw a need, and they met that need. There's a difference. They weren't foolish and just say, oh, the love of Christ, I'm going to give everything away. No. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? He said, go sell everything you have, oh no, and give to the poor. Give to those who have need and then follow me. That's what they're doing. They were giving, selling things and giving to people as there was a need, as the need arose. Remember, this kind of fellowship didn't exist before the Holy Spirit came. This was koinonia. This was koinonia, true spirit-led fellowship. Just like the Holy, before the Holy Spirit in our lives. I don't know what your creed was before the Holy Spirit, but my creed was every man for himself. Take care of number one. That's what I'm going to do. That was my creed before the Holy Spirit came. That was my creed. But when the Holy Spirit came, because of my acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when the Holy Spirit came upon me, all of a sudden, I became other-centered. I esteemed others better than myself. I looked out for the interest of others more than I did my own interest. We studied this in the book of Philippians. We studied that submissive mind that Christ was talking about in chapter 2. In verses 3 and 4, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not only look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. It becomes others-centered. And we're still learning this, and we're still trying to, to master this. And yes, we mess up sometimes because we have this flesh around us. And this flesh wants only thing and one thing only, and that wants to be number one. Flesh, one. You, second. In my flesh, it's all about me. What I want, what I need, what I can get. In my flesh. Enough me talking about me. It's your turn to talk. What do you think of me? That's what my flesh is saying. What my spirit is saying, what do you need? How can I meet a need that you have? How can I show you God's love? How can I show you God's peace? That's what the Spirit says. After all, Jesus told His disciples that you'll know you're on my disciples by all the things you have that you bought with your money. Don't accept that? I only see one or two heads shaking. That's not what Jesus said at all. Jesus didn't say that at all in John. In John 13, 35, He said, By this you will know my disciples if you have love one for another. If you have love, one for another. And Peter says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Love. Love each other with that fervent love. Forgive each other with that fervent forgiveness. You are Although our time is coming to a close for the day, you don't have to stop studying God's Word. We encourage all our listeners to spend time daily in the Bible, learning from the timeless text that your Creator has given you. If you'd like to listen to more of Pastor Dave's teachings from this series in Acts or explore messages from other books of the Bible, you can do so by visiting AssureHopeRadio.com. 
You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes to have updated messages sent right to your computer or phone. If you'd like a CD copy of today's message, we'd be happy to send you one. Just give us a call at 609-884-5821. That's 609-884-5821. We're so blessed to be able to share God's Word with you with each new edition of Assure Hope. But we want to encourage you to find a local church to attend regularly as well. Being a part of the body of Christ gives you a place to learn and grow with other imperfect people while providing an outlet for your unique, God-given gifts. If you're in the Cape May area, we'd love to have you come by Calvary Chapel, Cape May. We meet each Sunday at 10 a.m. for worship and Bible study, and childcare is available. We're excited to have you join us. For more information and to get directions, visit AssureHopeRadio.com. That brings us to the end of our program for today. Thanks for tuning in to Pastor Dave's study in the book of Acts today. And we hope you'll join us again right here on A Sure Hope.